Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned. Discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit learner.co. That's learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Marsha Dawood. She's an angel investor and chair of the Angel Capital Association. John and Greg, I'm excited about this episode today. We've had her on the show before, but today we're going to talk all about the different types of shares and different ways to get investment and from convertible notes and, and safes and, and whatnot. But what are you guys most excited to learn about from Marsha today? Well, I think those, what you just mentioned, uh, we've been talking about them a lot amongst ourselves. So uh, now that we have a, an expert on, I'm really interested in in how, what we can learn from her. Yeah, you know, Marsha is, I think we can call her a friend of the show now. So just just from that, that point of view, I'm excited to have her back. This is so great. But also, I mean, even though, even having been through fundraising before and and doing these sorts of things it's still always a little bit mysterious it's very different and um you know someone who's done it a lot there's so much uh, opportunity to learn from uh what you know what she has seen and what she's you know how these things get structured typically uh so that's gonna be pretty cool it's very relevant to us we're a startup so it's great this could be perfect just for our own learning today so self-interested yeah I, th I think the other thing too just the fact that she's probably seen more decks and probably done more deals and all the different types yeah. she's going to talk about i think is just fascinating to get her yeah. opinion and she's done so many different investments across america and just the different types that based on geographic location i'm curious to know if that plays in as well yeah, and even over time as well. I mean, there's definitely been, I mean, from from what I've heard, anyways, there's trends of things and how it's changed. And and she's been uh, investing long enough to be able to probably have experienced some of that, if it's true or not. So that's gonna be cool. All right, on with the show. Marsha, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. Great to be back. Yeah, I'm really pumped to have you back to talk about what we're going to talk about today. If people want to hear more about our, our previous interviews, they can go to the website and, and check it out. But I, I really want to dive into what we're going to talk about today. And that's just shares, types of shares, uh, what, when and how, when you're raising money. Because I think as an entrepreneur myself, it's incredibly difficult to figure out what to do when you're trying to raise money. So maybe let's dive right in and, and talk about what's, what is a preferred share and a common share? What's the similarities and differences and why would you pick one over the other? Great, so why don't I kind of walk through a little bit of an example of like a real company. Perfect. So if someone is looking to start their company, um, usually uh, they, they definitely should get a lawyer who, who knows a little bit about uh, startup world, not don't get your brother's best friend or something like that. 
you really want to make sure you're talking to somebody who has some experience with this. And this does not cost a ton of money up front. So you shouldn't have a lawyer who's going to charge you oodles of money in order to get this set up. But the the reason why you want to do this is you want to make sure that you're getting yourself set up properly with your co-founders. Now, if it's simply a company of that's just you, that's fine too, but uh, you really have you want to establish the company itself. And in most cases, investors aren't going to want to come into invest in your company unless you are a Delaware C Corp. LLCs are difficult to for investors to invest in, not that not that we don't uh, ever, but LLCs are a pass through. And I could go through a whole, we could do a whole other episode on that. But basically what that means is if there's tax implications with your company at the end of the tax year, it's going to come back to the investor. So investors don't like that. We don't, we don't really want to have to deal with your tax problems. We have our own tax problems to deal with. And again, just as a disclaimer, I'm not a tax person. I'm not an investment advisor. So just take everything I say with a grain of salt. This is just from my own personal experience. But when it comes to setting up your company, you want to establish the common shares, which are the shares owned by the founders, um, and basically figure out who has which shares. Like, how many do you own? How many does your co-founder own? Are there other people that have been helping you? We, as we know, in a lot of cases, very early on, there's a lot of sweat equity going on. Well, people will want to know, this, is this for, you know, how much am I going to get of this or how much are you going to get of that? So that's all uh, good. And you want to get that set up. And that is how you'd want to issue common shares. Now, in some cases, a founder will want to possibly give out some equity to in, in the very early stages when you're just getting set up. And again, you want to talk to your, your lawyer and your tax person about this, but you're going to want to get that set up. And sometimes you might have people that are helping you, but you don't want to give them all the equity that you want to give them right up front. So you can put it on a vesting schedule so that maybe none of it, they don't get any of it until even on paper until a year. That's called a cliff, one-year cliff. And then they could set it up so that... Um, you get it every quarter or every year, you get more. Okay, so that's really the common shares. Now, you wanna be setting up your, your company and get those common shares distributed before your company starts to have a whole lot of value because once your company starts to have value, now those common shares are worth something. And in that case, you're gonna to have to pay taxes on it. So again, not a tax person, but definitely wanna get with your tax person and make sure that you figure all that out ahead of time. Okay, so that's common shares. Now, when you have investors, you will get into wanting to issue preferred shares. Preferred shares simply means that if there's some type of a liquidation of the company, meaning you run out of money or you get bought for pennies on the dollar, or you have an incredibly amazing exit and you get everybody gets tons of money, the investors will get paid first. That's all that means. So we're preferred. We, we sit higher on your cap table than the common shares. And there's all kinds of terms related to that. And if you want to know more about that, I would highly encourage you to go to the Angel Capital Association's website. We have a whole course on term sheets because we, we don't have time to get into all the term sheets today. But preferred shares, that's pretty much um, the difference between the preferred shares and the common shares. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. What about setting up an employee option pool for future employees. What are your thoughts around that? Should you do it? At what point should you do that as well? 
Yes, that's a fabulous question. You want to set up a pool of common shares early on uh, when you're starting out. Um, and you that will be through an option pool. And and then as your company is growing, you're going to also uh, carve out more shares and more shares. So basically at any given time, depending on, on the needs of the company, and, and not everything is going to be, you know, a straight shot. But for the most part, you would want to have somewhere between 10 and 15% um, available to give to your incoming people that you haven't hired yet. So for example, good a good example is like you've got two founders, they're working on something, it's sort of tech related. Eventually they're going to need a CTO, um, but right away they don't. But down the road they're going to. And what happens is if you don't have those shares carved out ahead of time, then in the and you're not raising a priced round right now, then you end up getting into a little bit of a, a pickle because you don't have any shares to issue to somebody without diluting the uh, the investors and the founders that are already on your cap table. If it's just founders on the cap table at that point, it's not as big a deal, but always good to have a cushion so that if you want to attract talent, you have the shares to offer as well as a salary. Got it. So you don't have to basically reopen and go through the whole process legally is that correct? Well, the best time to carve out options yeah. is when you're doing your priced rounds. Okay. So you okay. can't really do it on a convertible note because you haven't priced anything, um, which we'll get into notes, I know, in a minute. <laughs> but um, we, you want to make sure that each time that you have a priced round or that you're taking on investors and you're actually setting a, a firm valuation that you put aside 10 to 15 percent depending on how big your team is if you don't if you have a very built out team let's say you have like four founders or five founders and each of you you've already established what everybody's equity is going to be and it's you know no big no big deal that you really don't feel like you have to hire some big bigger c-level people then maybe you don't need 10 to 15 percent maybe you only need like five percent or ten percent okay but if you have two founders and you haven't really built out a C-level team yet, and you know that you're going to need some people with to help with operations, supply chain, technology, whatever it is, you're going to want to make sure that you have those carved out ahead of time. Because if you're trying to go, like, let's say you just finished raising money and now all of a sudden you want to hire somebody, but you don't have enough in the option pool. That means you have to go back and tell all of the investors that just invested that you're going to dilute them a little bit more because uh, whoops, you forgot to take enough out in your option pool. Got it. Okay. And then a follow-up to that then is, okay. So in your CTO example that I'm going to hire in six, nine months, whatever, it doesn't matter. Do I, and I want to offer them equity, whatever the number is, doesn't really matter what's your thoughts on like do you do you give them a certain percentage right off the bat and then the rest like vests over time or when do you give them the full percentage or that you're going to offer them when you hire them because i've seen where people give like five percent for example and the cto in this case leaves after a year or two and then you have to hire a new one but then you don't have that obviously those options to give to them but if you only give them one percent of that five then at least you have four percent left 
or, or what's your thoughts around that? Yeah. So typically what I have advised my com my portfolio companies to do is to offer, you know, whatever they're going to offer, whichever, whatever makes sense for the company. But the terms of the options are it's over a four-year period, four-year vesting period. You don't get anything until one year out. So there's a one-year cliff. And then after the one-year cliff, then the shares will start to vest on usually and quarterly is a little fast just because it's a lot of paperwork to have to keep doing quarterly. So if you wanted to make it super simple, you could just do it every year, then a certain amount would vest. Got it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's dive into convertible notes and saves. I, I think most, this is where I think it gets very confusing for a lot of people. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, a convertible note is actual debt. It sits on the balance sheet as debt. It would be owed first if there was any kind of a liquidation event. A safe is stands for a simple agreement for equity and basically does not have the types of terms or structure that a convertible note has as debt because a safe is a little bit like you and I are sitting at a coffee shop and I say, well, I'll, you know, invest in your company. And then we go get a napkin and we write on it. That's, that's about how uh, much structure there is around a safe. Now, some people who are very pro safes would probably argue with me on that. Cause there's a lot of controversy between whether or not safes are good. And you will find that on the West coast, they're much more accepted and appreciated than on the East coast. But for example, I've seen now more recently where safes do have a little bit more structure to it. The main reason why a lot of investors don't like safes, and believe me, I've invested through a safe, a convertible note, preferred shares, all that good stuff. You, typically, an investor would never invest in common shares. Those are for the founders. But, um, but you know, I've done all of that. It's not that I'm against it. Uh, I think, you know, everything ends with it depends, which means that with a safe, um, you really want to make sure that the investors have some visibility, I guess is the best word, into what is going to happen with that money that I'm giving to company X. So if an investor invests through a safe and there isn't a lot of structure as far as like, well, when are you going to raise a priced round and when, what kind of a discount could I get? Or is there any interest? Well, there wouldn't be any interest on a safe because it's not a debt instrument. So, you know, those are the kind of questions that investors are thinking when they see that the instrument that the company wants to invest in is through a safe. Now, with a note, a note typically has interest rates and it has a discount into the next round. And most importantly to an investor, it has a valuation cap. It doesn't mean it's the valuation of the company, but it's a cap. It's the most money that um, that an investor would actually pay per share for the sh for the preferred shares that they're going to get once the company raises that priced round. So when we talk about a priced round, it may it's just that it means that you've now set a price on exactly how much each share is worth, and then the investors can come in and pay that exact price. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned safes are a bit more popular on the West Coast compared to the East Coast. Why do you think that is? 
because the people who came up with safes or, or who put the structure together were trying to make it um, very entrepreneur friendly, which I'm totally for. And they came out of Y Combinator and uh, Y Combinator is primarily on the West Coast. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So does it, whether I'm going to go with convertible notes or safes or can you go with both or for depending on investors or you have to pick one? Okay. That's a good question. So you really, well, legally really can only have one offering at a time. You can't, okay. it's kind of like even now with crowdfunding, if yeah. a company wants to raise money through crowdfunding platform, you can't have another offering out at the same time. You have to stop okay. all other fundraising and go just with a crowdfunding platform like WeFunder or whoever you use. So let me go back to like using a company as an example. Okay. If so, let's say that company X decides that they now have set up their common shares, they got all their founders all squared away, everybody's happy. Now they want to go and raise money. My number one piece of advice is don't raise money until you absolutely 100% need it. And I and people think, oh, of course, you know, that's kind of that's simple. But no, actually, that is not simple because people tend to think, well, if I just had more money, I could do X. And if I just had more money, then I could do Y. And then I could get, I could attract more investors because I had gotten my product to where I really, really want it to be. But there's a balance there. And I really encourage entrepreneurs to be as scrappy as they possibly can, get something out into the marketplace so that you can start to get feedback on whatever it is that you're working on, so that then you can attract the investors by showing what you've already done, as opposed to showing pictures of things that you haven't developed yet. So it is important for an investor to be able to kind of see and touch the product, just like when you're buying anything. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely you want to be as scrappy as you can at the beginning. And then once you get past uh, scrappy phase and you're like, okay, look, I, I really have to raise some money. Typically lawyers will are the first people to advise companies to say, okay, well, let's start raising on a convertible note. I'm not opposed to this um, at all, because in a lot of ways, it's very hard for a company to value themselves when they are so young. And sometimes you don't want to have your valuation be too low in your first price round, because then you could end up giving away too much of your company. Right. But I will advise that when you are putting together a convertible note, that you be super careful about the terms on the note and the amount of money you're going to take in through the note. That is probably the most critical part of the sentence I just said, is the amount of money you're going to take in on the note. And here's an example. So company X, let's say that the entrepreneur is like, hey, I need to raise some money. Great. The, the One of the number one um, entrepreneurial friendly pieces of a convertible note is that you can go out, find an investor. If they say, yes, I'm going to invest in you, you can get that money and you can put it right in the bank and you can start using it. With a priced round, in a lot of cases, you have to escrow money. There has to be a close. You have to wait until you get a whole bunch of investors together. Then you call the capital. It's a lot of, a lot of different moving parts. With a convertible note, it's simple. The agreement is relatively simple. It's maybe seven or eight pages. 
Um, you can go out, you can say, Hey, I I'm, I'm fundraising. I need some help. Great. Said person, said investor wants to put in, let's say $50,000. But what I've, what I've seen happen in the past is that the $50,000 turns into another person putting in 50 or a hundred or whatever. And then, okay. So let's say now a couple months have gone by and there wasn't a real strategy. It was more like, Hey, we got somebody to give us money and let's go ahead and take in as much as we can. But there wasn't like a, a, a set time or, or amount of money that they were going to say is the max. And then before you know it, when those notes go to convert into a priced round, the entrepreneur hasn't realized, oh my gosh, I just gave away like 10 or 15 or even 20% more of my company than I wanted to, because I didn't realize I was, I kept taking in the money because I was getting the money right now. And I didn't realize, oh my gosh, I, I did all this. And now I need to raise the price round. So that's going to cost me 20% equity. Oh, but wait, I still have all these notes. I, I forgot about those. I got to convert all those. Mm, that's another 20%. Now you've given away, like, you know, when you add it all together, it ends up being like 35, 40% of your company. It's a problem. Okay. Interesting. Is there, well, and I guess it's going to be company specific and just people just need to be aware that this can happen or what advice do you give to people to make sure that, that that doesn't happen? Like just that they are educated enough and learn enough about this stuff. So I guess the best thing to do is like start with the end in mind. So okay. I know that's hard because you're thinking, well, I want to build this company. Um, but you really want to sit down and think through what do I want to sell this company for? What, what's the end game? What, okay. how many, how, how much money do I think I need to raise and over what period of time in order to get to the end goal, which is to exit the company. Then take all of those statistics that you write down and double them. Okay. okay. So if you think it's going to take, that? yeah, <laughs> if, you, if you think it's going to take, you know, three years, it's going to take six or nine. If you think it's going to take <laughs> five years, it could take 10. I mean, it just, it always it's takes longer and it, and it takes more money, but the idea is have a plan, you know, planning is, is very good, obviously, but, and we know that of all plans, they probably don't, you know, work out exactly like you plan, nothing ever does, but you have an idea of what you think it's going to take. If you know that you're building some kind of a software and you need tech developers and you need this or the other thing, you can kind of get a sense of what's, what that's going to cost you. If you're building a hardware or something that is very, um, you know, that is extremely capital intensive, then that's going to be a different model than what you would be looking at if you had just software. So I always tell people like, try to, try to just at least have some kind of insight to that because you can then kind of back into, well, how much of the company do I want to own at the time that I exit? And of course, everybody's going to be like, well, I want to own a hundred percent. Well, great. Then don't ever take in investors. So, <laughs> but, um, but if you're, but there has to be a balance and, and good investors and good entrepreneurs, they'll find that balance. They'll figure out a good investor is never going to want to be like, Hey, I want to take, you know, 25% of your company when, you know, they're giving you a very little amount of money. If, if you find investors like that, just run the other direction because 
this is a long-term relationship. These companies take a long time to grow. They need a lot of help and a lot more money than they think, you know, even down the road. So it's very important that that investor entrepreneur relationship is strong so that you can help to get the company where they need to go while still incentivizing the founding team. Because what happens is if you end up as an investor taking too much equity in the company and then the founders get diluted too much, well, what's their incentive to stay and keep working on the company? Right. Interesting. No, I, I think, no, that's, that's really good advice. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. So if I'm raising, say, a seed round, I need to be either doing that as a safe or safe as or convertible note. But then if I'm raising a, a series A, I can go, I can go the other way. Like I can go convertible note where it was safe for the seed round. Is, is that correct? What you said earlier? Uh, no. Okay. So a convertible note or a safe is in oftentimes a bridge to a series seed a b you can call it whatever you want to anytime you hear the the term series a or or series b or series seed s-e-e-d that would be before the a or the b um that is a price round okay. so a convertible note raising on a convertible note is not a seed round um Got it. raising on a convertible note is something that you do to get yourself in a position to be able to raise the price round so for example wow. well, ideally a company would um, start to raise on a convertible note. Okay. They would raise, let's say, um, 500, I'm just going to use whatever numbers. Okay. $500,000. Then they say, okay, well, I think I can on 500,000 from the note, I can get my MVP up to a point where I could attract enough investors who will want to come in for my seed round the very first round that you're going to price. Now, that 500,000 that you took in, in into the note, that's going to convert at the time that the seed investors close. So uh, um, then, then let's say that that all happens and now you have some money and usually it's good to have a, a priced round last minimum 12 months, more like 18 to 24 months, because you don't want to get into the situation where you start to run out of money before you've hit your next set of milestones. Okay. So, right. but let's say that now you have enough runway. Let's say you have 18 months of runway and you think, okay, in 18 months, I'm going to be able to do all these great things with my company. And then at that point, I'm going to be able to attract a series B in, or sorry, series A investor. Seed was first. Now we want to attract a series A investor. But guess what? You had a little bit of a hiccup along the way and you haven't been able to um, get quite where you want it to be. So, but you're going to start to run out of money soon. And you really want to have, if you start to get to a point where it's looking like you're going to run out of money and you only have maybe six months left, that's the time you've got to start going out and fundraising. You don't want to wait until you have like one or two months of runway in the bank because no investor is going to get be very comfortable with that. So at that point, let's say you're not quite ready for the Series A, but you need to go out and get more money. You could, again, use a convertible note or a safe in order to get the money. And then once you got to a point where you started to raise your Series A, then you would do a price round whatever safe or convertible note you had that would all convert into the price round. Okay. And then 
if I go to series B, for example, if I make it that far, how does that kind of work? Same thing. So, okay. yep, you, you're going to, when your series A or your series seed investors, your A investors, they're all going to say, okay, so what is it that you're going to do with this money? They want to know use of funds. So right. you're going to tell them, I'm going to hire these people. I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to use it for marketing to get customers, whatever your things are. And then you're going to put some KPIs, key performance indicators on those particular things that you're planning to do. Once you hit those uh, milestones, then you're going to, you, you've already kind of established with your Series A investors, this is what I want to do in order to get the company to you know, this bigger place. Once you get to the bigger place, then you can say, now I can attract the series B investors. And you, you're going to go through the same, same process. You'll, if you can't quite get there without raising a note ahead of time, um, then you raise some money on a note that will convert in. Ideally, you just go right for the price round. Um, without having, because you're always as a, again, as a, a founder, you're giving away more equity than you might want to, because the notes have a discount and they also have an interest rate. And I will tell you a lot of times founders don't realize that even a 6%, that seems to be relatively standard 6% interest rate after a year, two years, three years, that adds up. Yeah. And you really want to make sure that, you know, that interest rate is also taking away from your equity. It's not like you're going to pay them in cash for the interest that's been earned. No, it gets converted with the rest of um, the note. And then, you know, so for example, if somebody, if you had $100,000 in, um, in convertible notes that you took, that has to convert in. But now if there was a 6% interest rate, you're giving away another $6,000 for every year that that $100,000 was, um, you know, working for you and you hadn't converted it into equity yet. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to go through valuation with you a little bit because it's incredibly difficult, I think. And I always joke that I, I sometimes I think it's like you just ask the magic eight ball, especially in the early days of like what your valuation should be. But obviously that's not accurate and that doesn't really help you here. But how does somebody come up with a valuation? And then I guess the caveat to that is, say you you think you're raising a million dollars and your investors come to you and say like, no, we think your valuation is, we'd give you, we think you're, you're better off raising say 800,000 instead of a million bucks. Like how does all that play out and how do you decide what your valuation is and then what to actually take or ask for? Because that's really hard. You're right. It's very hard. And the magic eight ball, the crystal ball, all of those things are handy. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's, it's really, it's tough. It's one of the toughest things that I think a founder comes across is trying to figure that out because again, it's, it's a marriage. I mean, the investor and entrepreneur relationship has to be solid from the beginning and it has to be uh, one where the one of the parties doesn't feel like the other one is taking advantage or has too much of a share in it. So there's a couple of things. First of all, there are 
resources on the Angel Capital Association's website that you can go and look at um, related to valuation. There are a couple of methods out there that you can use, but at the end of the day, um, really the price round, whoever is the lead investor or whoever's really helping to set the terms on the price round for a company is what somebody is willing to pay. So if you are, and you can kind of back into the numbers a little bit, let's say that you want to raise a million dollars just to be, uh, use round numbers. Well, if you only want to give away 20% of your company, then you're going to have to value your company at $4 million because your post money valuation is going to be five because you have the four, four million, which is pre-money, the million that you just raised, your post money's um, five, that million dollars represents 20% of the company. That's like the simplest math I can do for you. Um, and, but what that means is that you, is that really, does that make sense for the investors? And does that make sense for the founders? It may be that a company doesn't have enough of an, of a product built out yet to justify the investors saying that they will pay that kind of evaluation. And maybe they're going to say, look, if you want a million dollars, you've got pretty much nothing right now. You're going to have to give up more, a, a bigger percent of the company. And But then if a founder does that, that can lead to a lot of problems down the road. So imagine if it's like half that. Well, now you've given up 50% or 40% of your company. And then what? Now when you go to raise a round again, you're you don't have that much equity to continue to give out. So it's really important to think about all these things as you're going through and getting to this place of like, okay, where am I really going with this? So back to the end in mind, you want to see what do I really think it's going to take for me to build this company? And, you know, going and saying, hey, I'm just going to raise as much money as I can and see what happens. That's not a good strategy. Okay. But then what if just, I guess my, like, we're raising a million bucks, but investors are saying, well, we'd maybe be more interested at 800,000. Like, what's your thoughts on saying like, okay, well, if we can raise it 800,000 instead of a million bucks, we should do that. Or should you hold out on the million dollars? Does it really depend? Or what are your thoughts around that? Mm, I think that depends. I mean, okay. if you have an, an investor that's arguing with you over raising 800 or a million dollars, and that's, that's not, a lot of money to be talking about in the grand scheme of things. Okay. And I would rather see an invest or I'd rather see an entrepreneur raise more money if they can, um, as long as they're sticking to the plan. You know, there should be like if you're going to raise a million, you should be comfortable raising a million and a half on that valuation, which means you would be giving away a little bit more equity. But you and your board should be talking through that and saying, okay, what's the maximum amount of money we'd be willing to take at this particular valuation, whatever it is, so that then you can say, okay, we're gonna rate, we're we're going out to to raise. You could even start with saying you're going out to raise 800, and then you get to 800, and then you're like, okay, wait a minute, I'm oversubscribed. I will tell you that uh, people do have FOMO, as we know across <laughs> across the world, everybody in some way. So 
having an entrepreneur tell an investor that they are oversubscribed usually means that they're, they've got all the money that they need. And so in a lot of cases, investors hear all the time, please, 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 please invest in my company. But if then investors start to hear, wow, um, you know what? I really don't need your money. Then I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What's that mean? You know, so okay. they're going to um, being oversubscribed actually can be a good thing. Okay. Interesting. You touched on something that I want to dive a little bit deeper into too. At what point do you recommend having and creating a board and do those people get equity or how should they be compensated, if at all? Typically, um, board members are compensated with very, very, very small amount of options, usually okay. like a quarter of a percent. I mean, it's very, very small. Um, your board really should make be made up of, in the very early days, three people. Okay. One is the CEO. One is another person from the company rep that represents the common shares. And then the third person is somebody who's representing the investors. And the investors should kind of, um, you know, put their heads together and figure out who's the best person to be on the board. And when I say best person, it doesn't mean the person who wrote the biggest check. It really means who's the person that's going to help the company the most, who has the the expertise, the background, the network in order to really help this company grow. Then, wow. and that should be early, pretty early on. I mean, as soon as you take on investors, even in a note format, I mean, you could still form a board. Um, but then as the company grows, especially once you get to like a series A, then you've got, you could have seed investors and you could have series A investors. So now a five person board makes more sense. You have the two people originally from the company. You've got the original uh, seed person uh, representing the investors. You have somebody now who's a series A investor, and you may want to go out and get an independent, meaning somebody who isn't necessarily tied um, to the company from an investment standpoint. But let's say a good example would be, let's say you had some kind of, kind of a medical device and you needed yeah. a specific type of doctor or okay. PhD that would be an excellent person to put on board in that case. Got it. So just, I guess, to go a bit earlier in the show, then when we were talking about setting up like an employee option pool and whatnot, would you also set up a little bit of shares for people on your board at that point? Or when would you work that in? Yeah, you. that's all included. I mean, okay. you, you would, that would all be from the same option pool. Got it. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So this is maybe a, kind of a weird question just based on, geographic region seems to call things and rounds different so <laughs> yeah like why why is that and what where did these names come from and is there any advice on what people should do like is there east coast is generally this at this stage or west coast is generally this or in the middle is this or what do you go by or what advice do you give people with that you know, it, it all kind of depends. In all okay. honesty, people use all different kinds of names. You hear I, somebody the other day was using a Series A3. I, you know, I'm, okay. like, oh, um, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure what that means, but okay. But no, I do. We get, what, what ends up happening is sometimes a company will open, let's say, a Series A. In this case, what they meant was they open a Series A and they raise some money on it. But then they, they they keep working on the company, but maybe they didn't get 
as far as they wanted to stay. So instead of like doing a convertible node or thinking that they're going to try to do a, a B round when they really haven't gotten to the milestones they wanted to, well, then they're going to open the A round again, meaning they're going to take in a little bit more money, same valuation. That would be like a series A1, you know, or an A2 or whatever you want to call it. So it just depends on the company and kind of where, where they're going with that. But, you know, tip, I, a couple of years ago, it was kind of the wild, wild west. People were naming things, all kinds of stuff. I have seen it get a little bit more streamlined in the last couple of years. You know, a seed round, pretty much people, they, they know that that's like your first real money in. And in some okay. cases, it might mean that you are really early and you don't have a lot of, you haven't taken much in convertible notes, but you've really developed your product because maybe the founders either had money of their own or put in a whole bunch of time on the weekends and evenings. And so they've really got something pretty built out. Series A usually means that there's a lot more to the product, to the company, you have more employees, you might have some revenue at this point. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is a little bit of it and it depends. So I don't usually care so much about what they call it. It's more about what is it that the what's the offering and how much um you know the first thing i want to do is look at the cap table to show who owns what and you know you made a comment earlier about like what happens if you have somebody who leaves and now that person took a bunch of equity i mean that happens all the time so that's why early on being more cautious about how much you're giving away and having people earn that over time on a vesting schedule, especially with the one-year cliff, it's not like you're going to not reward them, but you want to make sure that they're going to stay with you through the hard times when you're trying to get the product to where you really want it to be so that then you can attract more investors, more you know, staff, a different team you know, as the company's growing. Sure. So where does the term like series come from like obviously series a b and c but like where does the term series come from and what does it mean well that's a good question i'm guessing it's just because of the way that the um legal documents are written okay no that makes sense so i'm curious to get your thoughts on so you mentioned a few minutes ago about people that maybe they're working full-time maybe they're not but let's say they're bootstrapping their company in the evenings and weekends and doesn't really matter where they are in the product, at what point or should they potentially consider getting venture capital? Because it's not always for everybody and it's not for every company. So what advice do you give to people to say like, do you actually need money or or, or what do you say to, to people around that? As far as whether or not they should actually raise at this particular time? Yeah, or ever really. Well, I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, if it if they can wait to fundraise, that's the best, especially when you have entrepreneurs that are we call them serial entrepreneurs, meaning that this is not their first rodeo. Those types of entrepreneurs could have potentially had an exit from a previous company and they roll that into the this new company. And I mean, that's super attractive to an investor. So at that point, the um, the founder should really hold on to as much of the equity as they possibly can before they go out and raise more money. And I've seen that happen a lot of times where people will raise, you know, roll in even 
a million, $2 million from another company that they personally benefited from. And then that that's their series A or, or I'm sorry, their series seed right there that, right. so they don't necessarily have to um, take on investors early on. And then they take on the investors once the company's really grown. No, I, I think that's a, actually really good advice. What are your thoughts around? And I, I did this with the first company I sold is we basically were working on a product while doing client work. And obviously it takes longer because, but what are your thoughts around kind of self-funding it a little bit as well? What maybe whether you have money to put in from before or how common do you think it is still where people are kind of just self-funding some of this stuff? Because I know it used to be a lot more common and people weren't talking about it or, or not that often, but it seems to be maybe a bit of both or, or what do you see these days and, and what are your thoughts around that? I think the the more somebody can self-fund their company, the better. And so for so many reasons, it, it really shows that you care uh, about your company, that you believe in it. So why would I, as an investor, want to invest in a, an entrepreneur that hasn't put their own money or their family's money or gone to their friends and family? I've, I've had people come to me and they say, well, I don't want to ask my friends and family for money because what if I lose it? We're like, well, what if you lose the investor's money? We're, you know, right. that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So um, if you don't have that much confidence in your product, then you shouldn't be taking money from anyone. So in a lot of cases, especially, um, you know, when you when you have a new entrepreneur, a lot of times they're they're even more cautious because they're thinking to themselves, oh, my gosh, I don't want the burden or the, you know, I don't want that responsibility of taking on an investor. It's nothing to be scared of. It's just it will make you as an entrepreneur feel a lot better if you've put in your own money and you've gotten the company to a point where now your confidence level is higher. So it's not like uh, an investor saying, well, you have to put in you know, all of your own money before you take on investors. It's more like put the money in so that you know as an entrepreneur that you, you have a ton of confidence and, and you really believe in the product and you can take it with the help of investors to the next level. Well, and you could argue that if you're successful, you're going to get that money back and hopefully, you know, exactly. 10, 100 times or whatever they remember. Right? That's, exact, that's exactly right. And that means that you just get to keep more of your own company. And and I've actually seen entrepreneurs where they will um, they'll own some common shares. And as soon as they go to do a priced round and they're offering preferred shares, they buy some of the preferred shares. That's okay, too. Okay. So, okay, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So what would you, or what's your advice then? So I put in some money at the beginning, say whatever, say five grand, doesn't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And then those would be preferred shares. Correct? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In, in a lot of cases, when you're first starting out, it's kind okay. of um, a given that the entrepreneurs will put in some money of their own. Okay. But, you know, definitely you want to keep track of that. And in a lot of cases, you might have, let, let's say in this case, you've got three entrepreneurs or three founders. Okay. Well, if one person put in like 50 grand, another person put in three. Yeah. Well, I think the person putting in 50 grand should get more common shares, you know, because you're just setting up the company right now and you're trying to get, you know, that established. But then let's say that now you, you know, you've got some traction, you've been bootstrapping. Um, and now you get to a point where you're going to go out for a priced round, you know, it, 
it, I've seen it happen before where entrepreneurs will actually be a part of that priced round if in fact, you know, they have the money to do that. Right. Okay. And then they would, it, when that comes up, then they would just get the other kind of shares. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I'm curious, how have you kind of learned all this stuff and, and what advice or resources do you give to people that obviously want to learn more about this? Because obviously we can't cover everything in an hour. Right. I think a lot of it is, I mean, I've just learned by doing it and seeing all that. I, even though it sounds like, well, most companies can all be structured the same way. It, every company is just a tiny bit different about how they went about it. Did they right. do a convertible note first? When did they decide to take a price round? And every company is going to have it, their own, it depends um, kind of um, answers. You know, it's, everything is just going to be different depending on the company. And so, you know, in some cases I've seen entrepreneurs who went really crazy on taking notes, you know, taking in convertible notes. I had one a uh, guy who actually he just kept crossing out the terms because he didn't want to pay a lawyer anymore. So then he he would cross out the terms and he'd get a new um, a, a new investor and he'd cross out the terms again. And and now he was taking in money through convertible note over years. And by the time he went to convert them, he had given away so much of the company, didn't realize it. And now when he really had something and he was going out and and investors were really interested in investing when they went and looked at that they're like wait a minute you you don't even have the equity to give us so we had to go back to those original note holders we had to tell them look i know this is what you were promised but guess what uh recapitalization um we need to change it interesting okay that can't be a easy or great conversation to have with no people exactly not it's really not the greatest conversation but considering like you, you could have a little bit, a little piece of a big thing, or you could have a big piece of a little thing that's worth like kind of nothing. So, so it's, again, everything's a balancing act between the company and the investors. So, you know, in order for people to kind of learn more about it, I would definitely say go to resources like we have at the Angel Capital Association, um, you know, just start talking to other um, entrepreneurs, people who have done this before, find a good startup attorney who is willing to have conversations without, you know, charging lots of money. I mean, I, I've met tons of amazing lawyers who are just, Folio Ag is a great example. Um, they have some amazing startup lawyers. They're out of Boston and we can put the information in the show notes. They will talk to you, you know, for 20, 30 minutes and kind of figure out what your situation is and then say, Hey, this is, this is what I would say is the best path. No, I, I think that's really good advice. I'm curious, is there any other advice that you would like to give to people that we haven't talked about today in the show around any of the topics we've covered today? Well, anytime that you have a company that is really solving a big problem and you're not just a solution in search of a problem, and you can bootstrap it a little bit and get it to a point that you have something concrete to show. I think that is where you're going to start to really get the interest of, of potential investors. And you should start those conversations early. So there's the saying in 
in VC land, which is if you want advice, ask for money. And if you want money, ask for advice, because in a lot of cases, um, you'll get the other, depending on what you're asking mm -hmm. for. So building relationships with people who could be potential investors down the road early on is great because then you're talking to them without that pressure of, oh my gosh, I have to think about what do, this person wants me to invest and I don't really know enough about the company. So now there's already like a defensiveness in the relationship. And right. so I found that if people who are trying to build a company, if they really start to just have conversations and let people know what they're doing early on and they're able to bootstrap, that's really probably the best way to get started. Because then when it is time to take on investors down the road, you have a lot of people that you've already talked to and now they're super interested in where you've gotten because they've been watching you for a while. No, I, I think that's really good advice. The one thing, then it's kind of off topic a little bit, but I, I think it's worth mentioning and I'm curious to get your thoughts on is I was talking to this investor at this big, well-known firm, and I won't say the name because it, it doesn't matter. But what happened was he reached out to a company cold that he wanted to invest in. And it took... He, he met them and flew around the world a couple of times to go meet them in person. And it still took him nine months to put money into a company that he was trying to put money into. And why I say that is just because of how long it took when an investor was interested in a company. And, and so you maybe want to talk about some timelines about what people can expect with maybe different rounds because it's all over the map. And, and I think what I just mentioned is a good example of how long it can truly take, even when an investor wants to give you money. That's true. It And it all goes back to building those relationships early and often. Um, I invested in 2021 in a founder who I met in 2015. And okay. I hadn't invested since, you know, before the 2021 investment. So, you know, sometimes it just takes... It takes time. So I always tell people, meet people, start to get to know them, uh, start reaching out to groups and learning, you know, what their thesis is so that you can see if you fit in with it. You know, some groups will only invest in technology, some in life sciences, some will only invest in women founders, you know, so it just depends on uh, what, what their thesis is, but learn that and get to know them and figure out what, uh, what they would want to do in order to become an investor. Oh, I, I think that's really good advice, but sadly we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the Angel Capital Association, and maybe if you want to mention that other uh, lawyer or legal firm uh, as well in any sure. other links. Yep. So you can get lots and lots of great resources at the angelcapitalassociation.org. And the law firm is called Foley, F-O-L-E-Y, Hoag, H. OAG and they are located in Boston and you can reach out to them and try to get some more information. And then you can find me at my website, which is marshadawood.com. And you also should listen to my podcast. I have a podcast that's all about angel investing. And it's on your website? Yes. Perfect. Well, as always, Marsha, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Of course. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Thank you. Bye. Well, John and Greg, what did you guys think of that? Oh, it's great. Um, I 
it was everything I was hoping for and more. Yeah, she just, she totally delivered. That was, I mean, I think people pay a lot of money actually for for that kind of information sometimes. So that was a terrific episode. Yeah, I, I, knowledge. I, I feel like we just took like a whole course in like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that would have taken like days or weeks of like reading and research and and everything so i thought it was awesome i i honestly think for a lot of um you know young entrepreneurs in particular that are looking at raising money for the first time or people who are interested in angel investing for the first time just go back to the beginning of the show and listen to it over again <laughs> take some notes these are all some really helpful stuff that was, that was a great show well and i also think too just the fact that she's part of the angel capital association as the chair yeah. and she's been doing investments across the country for a number of years now she's seen basically everything at this point and can actually give good advice around mm -hmm. it because she's been there done that and seen the pros and cons of both i think makes her super valuable yeah and I actually like too that she gave different perspectives on things too. She wasn't like, this is the East Coast way is the only way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't do any of that sort of stuff. She uh, kind of gave pros and cons to, to different approaches and just recognized their existence. I think that's, that's super helpful too. Totally. Very cool. That's a great show. Thank you for tuning in to the learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with two L's at www.lleerner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.